Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education. So in today's episode, we have the distinct privilege of having on our show esteemed writer, journalist, Peter Rubin. Just as background, Peter is a senior writer and he oversees Wired Magazine's culture section. Uh, in 2014, his cover story on Oculus introduced readers to the rebirth of VR. And Peter has written frequently about the evolution of VR and its many applications. So he's here today to talk to us about his recent book, Future Presence. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for having me, Craig. Everyone has kind of their why did I get into this or origin story. So why don't you uh, share with us, how did you get interested in this fairly new or I guess kind of rebirth of virtual reality? Sure. Well, I think like a, a lot of other people, I had interest in it long before it was a viable technology. I mean, I grew up um, sort of as a child of the 80s and 90s. And so a lot of the pop culture that I was consuming, especially in the, the early and mid 90s, was sort of being influenced by the the initial rise of VR as a possible consumer technology. I mean, movies like Lawnmower Man and and oh, yeah. uh, Demolition Man and, and, and you know and and this was after it had kind of crossed from researchers to speculative fiction and then from speculative fiction into Hollywood scripts and so there was this sort of uh ever increasing sort of distortion of what it could do at the time. So, you know, watching watching this stuff as a teen, I was completely swept away by the idea. Um, and as we know, the what you could actually do in VR as a run-of-the-mill consumer in those days was incredibly limited, and so it went away. So I didn't really think about it very much sort of throughout the 2000s as, as I kind of grew into adulthood and I started working in journalism. And then um, in 2012, when Oculus sort of first showed up at the E3 game show, I heard about it secondhand. I was not able to see it. This was the the kind of famous demo. John Carmack brought a very early duct tape prototype of the Oculus Rift that was running uh, the video game Doom, which he had sort of retrofit to be used in a headset. And I heard about it then. Um, wasn't able to see it. And then the next year, 2013, I found out that Oculus was actually having meetings. Uh, and so I went. I wasn't going to miss the chance to see that. And so I scheduled a meeting with a colleague of mine. And uh, and I got to see the original development kit they were using, what was then being called DK1. And then when I that was kind of an early demo. And then when I walked into the meeting room and sat down with Brendan Arib, who was the original sort of CEO of Oculus, he sort of opened this case and pulled out what was the first, um, the first uh, 1080, it was the first sort of high def version of the DK1. And so was, I did a very short... Was, Paul, sorry. was Palmer lucky there too? <sighs> was Palmer there? That is a great question. I remember meeting... Was Palmer at the E3 meeting? I don't, man, I don't remember. That's such a that's such an interesting thing because I spent a lot of time with Palmer over the next year or so when I was working on the, the magazine story that grew out of this, but I don't remember if he was there. Um, 
it it may have been just Brendan and Nate Mitchell, who was the vice president of product. Um, it may have been all three of them, uh, but I don't remember specifically whether or not I met Palmer at that time. So I, so I do this VR demo and I get back to work and we had a pitch meeting and I was like, listen, you're not going to believe me because, you know, obviously Wired had sort of covered VR from its first inklings in the, in the, in its own, like it was founded in 1993. So at the time, back then the magazine was covering, you know, Jaron Lanier and, you know, the rise of these companies and, and the failures of VR. And I said, look, we've heard this all before, but I saw something that really changed my mind. And I feel like VR is going to come back in a big way. And so they gave me permission to sort of write a story. And so over the next nine months, I spent a lot of time at Oculus, sort of learning about what they do, having a bunch of conversations with the people there. So my sort of initial reintroduction to VR was also in a very real way, the start of my career in writing about VR. There was no, there was no gap. You know, I saw this thing, it captivated me to such an extent that I was like, I, I have to, I have to write about this. I have to learn more about this. Cause that's really, you know, that's what journalism is, is learning more about a thing you're curious in, um, a thing you're curious about. And so it really was that sort of origin moment, that inflection moment was, it wasn't like I saw VR a few times and then after about a year, I was convinced that something was going to come out of it. It was really the first moment that I put on a headset, turned around, saw the back of the cave behind me. You know, it's the it's the yeah. same experience people have the first time they experience it in a, in a lot of instances. And that was enough to tell me um, what promise it had. Obviously, it was not a finished thing. It's still not a finished thing. But the promise of it was um, was was apparent to me even then. Well, and I, I love in your book how you use the word presence and, and the way you sort of unpack that because most people, uh, as an educator who started up a VR lab in Calgary and now here at the school in Singapore, it's not till people actually put the headset on that they realize how immersive or real it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's impossible to describe it because even if you told somebody what that meant, even if you told them you're going to put on a headset and you're going to be able to look around, but then you're going to be able to physically turn all the way around and you'll still be there. That, yep. you know, that abstractly says something to somebody, but it's not until they put it on and their brain sort of clicks in and that phenomenon of presence establishes itself that it really makes sense to them. So let's talk a bit more about your book then. Um, uh, I, I listened to... A podcast you did, which was on the internet, and I can't remember the name of the company, but you joked about the length of the title. So I hope you don't mind that I'm just going to use uh, the, the shortened title, which is Future Presence. No, that's that's totally fine. I, I ended up coming around. I think it's, you know, I think a lot of books have, you know, that sort of initial title and then that sort of subtitle that really unpacks what the book tries to get at. So hopefully Future Presence is evocative enough that, that people get it, but um, I, I don't mind if you want to spell it out. That's totally fine. What, uh, so what was one of your favorite parts or sections uh, in the book? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I think for me, uh, now the book sort of starts with a little bit of obligatory history of sort of how we got to this point. And then it starts kind of running from the sort of 
the personal experience that you have by yourself and then slowly zooming out to these experiences that you can have with others and then gets into sort of friendship and romance and 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 so on for me i think the my favorite things to report were the sort of early glimpses of what it was like to share a virtual experience with another person. Specifically, mm-hmm. there is an experience that uh, that I did while it was being developed that's called VVVR, and 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 this came this was from a sort of an early immersive artist. His name is Ray McClure, and he developed this experience by which you would two of you would sit together in. In the real world, you'd sit together, like facing each other, and then you'd put on your headsets, yeah. and and you would be facing one another in there. You didn't have facial features; you were these sort of blue, bald creatures wearing flowing robes. It was very abstracted. And when you open your mouth and started making sounds, colored shapes would come out of your mouth. And this experience was purely about sort of droning at one another. You could say words, but you you sort of had to experiment yourself and and figure out how you could make the color and shape that you wanted to and that really involved getting over the sort of self-consciousness you had about making these crazy noises in front of somebody else and so it was this really incredible experience of of not triumphing over, but getting past the self-consciousness that a lot of people complain about when they put on a headset for the first time. There's always this disconnect of, if I put on a headset, then people in the real world are going to watch me acting in a way that's somewhat out of step with what they're experiencing too, because I'm reacting physically in response to this virtual experience that they can't see. And so that's not that's not really a socially acceptable thing where we worry about acting kind of weird all the time. Um, and, and that's, so that's self-consciousness and, and VR has this, there is that sort of turn you need to make. And what's lovely about VR is that it really encourages you to lean into the experience that you're having inside the headset and what presence does. And this is why the book is called future presence. Presence is this phenomenon where, the outside world kind of falls away and you find your experience completely governed by the reality of what you are being presented in VR because it's so realistic and you move within it and the the sort of lower level brain processes believe it as reality. And so your higher level thinking responds that way as well. And so self-consciousness is one of the things that holds you back. But if VR is good enough and the presence is strong enough, then it really helps you get past that self-consciousness. But it's this sort of hand-in-hand thing. You, If you resist it too much, you're only going to be worried about what's happening outside the headset and what other people are thinking, which is sort of what, I guess, um, limits what people think about VR as a public technology rather than a mm-hmm. private one. This is something people are using in their own homes, and it's just a lot harder to use it out in public for that very reason. Well, have you tried Where Thoughts Go, which uh, is an application where uh, – anyway, I'll start there. Have you heard of the, the VR game or app called Where Thoughts Go? Is that the one about – that's not – oh, I'm thinking of Notes on Blindness. Describe it for me. Um, so you're, you're walking around. They sort of break it up into different chapters. So in the background, you can hear a question being posed, and there are these floating balls or bubbles, and you can pop one. And it's someone else's 
answer to, you know, a, a personal yet provocative question. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then you have to record your own thoughts uh, and leave a bubble for someone else. Yeah, and and that's that's a really kind of lovely experience, and and the, you just reminded me that this is Lucas Lucas Rosato is the is the developer that created this, and and it's wonderful, yeah. and it's one of those things where you are connected to other people, not ne not necessarily in real time, but you are sort of engaging with the thoughts of other people, and it's this really interesting sort of hybrid. Um, you are you are by yourself, but you're very aware of the existence of other people. And that existence of other people is so integral, I think, to to VR sort of continuing to evolve and to people wanting to use it. Obviously, you know, in the past five years, there's been a lot of sort of hand-wringing about, has it been successful? Was it a fad? You know, what are its prospects? And it's prospects are entirely dependent to me not on how good it makes a video game but on how you can be with other people in there and where thoughts go is a really interesting sort of thing uh where you're not like i said you're not with other people but you are in you are forced to um you're engaging with with their existence and and that's what's important here moving forward then so i loved your chapter five and you, in chapter five of the book just in case listeners haven't read it yet, which they should, uh, you talk about this whole embodiment, embodiment where you can either see your hands or just the, the sheer realism of it. And, you know, how, because it's so uh, realistic, that it can create a longer lasting memory. Being that this podcast is trying to focus on teachers and educators and get them to understand and possibly use VR, take that sort of dive. Um, can you tell listeners a little bit more about this idea of as it becomes more embodied that maybe users, whether that's students or teachers themselves, uh, might remember more? Absolutely. Now, when, when, virtual, when, when VR first sort of came back around, one of the cheapest and easiest ways that people could use it, I don't know if they've heard of Google Cardboard, uh, which was this very, uh, you, you could fold it yourself and you'd put your smartphone into it and you would sort of get the illusion of being in a 360 degree environment. Now, that was a very kind of um, pale version of, of true virtual reality. And true virtual reality, not only can you look around, but you can move within it. And once you're able to move within it, and once you have hand controllers or you're holding something or you are being scanned by a camera so that your hands show up and you have a, and you can look down and you have a sense of having a body. And that's absolutely crucial because what it does is it gives you a sense of where you are in space. Now, you don't necessarily need embodiment for VR's memories um, for its kind of effects on memory. So, so let's get to the memory thing, and then we can talk about how embodiment intensifies that. So I, I kind of talk about a study in the book, which is, I think, the best one to illustrate how VR is, is, can be so incredible for learning. And that is that researchers took a group of people, showed them video, uh, of a motorcycle ride through the countryside and they could watch it on the TV or uh, they could watch it while wearing a headset and 
if they were watching it wearing a VR headset, they could look around during the motorcycle ride just as uh, they would look around while they were on the motorcycle itself. So, so if you were watching it on TV, all you'd see was like the view from a helmet-mounted GoPro camera. And if you were watching it in a VR headset, you could kind of look around and it felt a little bit more like you were really there. And afterwards, uh, researchers did memory tests on both groups of people. And what they found was that those who had experienced the motorcycle ride in a VR headset took a, a tiny bit longer to answer each question. And the question was always, they showed you a picture and they said, is this from uh, the motorcycle ride that you went on or is this just a different shot of the German countryside? And those who had done it in a VR headset not only performed better on the test, but they took a little bit longer to answer each, each question. And that, coupled with uh, fMRIs that had been done, was consistent with the idea that the people who had done it in a VR headset were accessing memories from the part of the brain that stores not observational memories, but participatory memories. In other words, they remembered the motorcycle ride as if they had actually been there. Now, think about asking students to study for something. Uh, and the uh, the difference between reading about, uh, let's just use the universal sort of frog dissection from my own kind of my own <laughs> old school days, you could read about it in a book or you could do it yourself. And had you done it yourself, you would have a little bit more of an immediate recall of the things you had seen and how it all sort of fit together. Doing something in virtual reality has a similar advantage over just looking at photographs. It's as though you did this thing yourself but without, with the added benefit of not needing to actually dissect a frog. And because VR is so good at simulating things, you could walk through a circulatory system or you could visit a region of the world that you couldn't otherwise visit. And it's not like reading about it in a book and it's not like watching a documentary. It's more in terms of the way you remember it, of you actually being there, thus sort of locking in the memory in a more vivid, uh, high-fidelity way. And so as early VR came around, this Google Cardboard that I mentioned earlier, a lot of teachers said, well, oh, we can bring students to museums, and that's wonderful. Uh, and it certainly is a way to give students experiences they might not otherwise have because of geography. But there's this sort of added benefit with embodiment. When you're able to walk around inside something and in, in, inside a simulation of something that you couldn't get to in any other way, inside a cell. Like if when we are able effectively in a, in a VR experience, able to be shrunk down to the size of a cell or a molecule or what have you, you, and you can see these things interact in ways that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see. Then when you get out of the VR headset and you kind of think back to this, the, the vividness of it is just a, it's a completely other level past reading about it or even watching a sort of a, a visualization of it. Good, good explanation. Uh, I'm going to shift gears a bit from that and go to uh, a bit, if I can use the cliche, your wheelhouse. You talk a lot about the potential for social VR. And so one thing in your book you mentioned was the use of a game or an application called Rec Room. So I played Rec Room myself. And, you know, the first time I actually was in there, someone came up to me and started trying to interact with me and 
you know, to be honest, I was a bit scared. I kind of walked away from them and, and kind of shied away from that whole social part to what Rec Room is trying to do. Um, tell me a bit about the social side and, and the implications, and then I'll, I'll unpack this a little further later. Sure. Now, now the, the experience that I mentioned before, this VVVR thing, where you sort of sat with another person, this was... Um, this was kind of a precursor to to more fully featured social platforms. And Rec Room is one, and Facebook has one called Spaces, and uh, there's another called Altspace, and another called VR Chat. And these are all very similar in the sense that you you launch these experiences and you choose an avatar and you are fully embodied. You have your head and your hands, and you can sort of move around and depending on the platform you use, there are different sort of degrees of fidelity to what these avatars look like. Um, they're not photorealistic. They're not even close. They are, they all have sort of varying degrees of being sort of cartoonish abstractions of, of what people and creatures look like, because it's just a lot easier to render these in real time when you're moving around and you have a lot of users on a platform at the same time. Facebook, which owns Oculus, is doing a lot of research in creating avatars that are visually indistinguishable from your actual self. Uh, it's very expensive. It's very time-consuming. It, it's it's a it's a few years away. So right now, we look very cartoonish in these platforms. Like when you went into Rec Room, I'm sure you you got the opportunity to build a character who looked as much like you as you could make it, or you could make it look totally different and you could design its clothes. And, and then you walk out into a space where other people are. And, and that's when things become really interesting because when you are embodied in virtual reality, you, you have personal space. We've never had a feeling of personal space on the internet before in any way. We are very used to the detachment and the anonymity of being sort of behind a keyboard or behind our phones when we use things like Twitter or even sort of real-time communication platforms like chat rooms. These are text-only, or sometimes there can be video like when you're Skyping with somebody, but you're always far apart from one another. And in VR, when you are embodied and you have a sense of personal space, if someone walks up to you like they did with you, all of a sudden, whether or not they talk to you, you have this overwhelming sense that you are there with somebody. And that's called social presence. Um, so it's not just that you believe your virtual surroundings, it's that someone else is there too. And like I said, we've never had this before. And what this does it has some very good result, good sort of consequences, and it has some potentially very bad ones. On the on the good side, it's incredible. You because you are embodied, all your mannerisms translate into VR. If you sort of habitually sort of look up when you're gathering your thoughts, or you move your hands in a certain way, your avatar is going to do that too, because the controllers that you're holding and the headset that you're wearing are being translated into the hands and the head of your avatar. So your real, the real you comes out. And that's a remarkable sort of accelerant of getting to know somebody. But just as you noted, Craig, if you feel like your personal space is being violated or somebody is approaching you and you don't necessarily feel comfortable or even safe, then that is a great demonstration of why it's so important to create 
safety in these social spaces as well. Now, if someone is harassing or bothering somebody else in virtual reality, it's not only as venal as it is when someone is being harassed online, it's more so because it's happening in an embodied space and because you Ooh. you take off your headset and you're like, oh my God, that person really got close to me and was saying these terrible things right into my face, right into my ear. It's much more like being personally attacked than than being digitally being sort of cyber cyber harassed. And so it is potentially much more harmful. So what the developers of platforms like Rec Room and Altspace and VR Chat are reckoning with is how do you not only create tools so that users can block or mute people who are bothering them or even make them disappear or ban them entirely, but how do you create spaces that disincentivize that kind of behavior? We had social platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram grow very, very fast because that's what they cared about. But they grew very, very fast before they got out in front of how it could be misused. VR's one of its biggest challenges is how does it build these structures, these sociological structures, to disincentivize this sort of this terrible behavior and this harassment before it becomes a wide-scale problem before VR becomes a wide-scale technology with problems as big <laughs> as its scale. Do you think, so I read a bit, Jeremy Balinson, who I think he's Stanford VR and has wrote a few books. He talked in one of his books about uh, embodiment to the extent that someone could experience the empathy of growing up as you know, a black person in America or being Muslim and, and feeling what that might be. With the cartoonish avatars, do you think they're realistic enough that, you know, it would represent those sorts of societal um, negativities? Like, could you go into rec room, for example, make your avatar maybe a, a black looking avatar and walk around and, and feel, you know, feel that what it's like to be like that? So, you know, there's a really interesting phenomenon that that came out of Jeremy's lab. The Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford has done sort of pioneering research for a very long time, well predating the return of VR as a consumer technology. They've been working with it for, for far longer. And there's a, a phenomenon called the Proteus effect. And the Proteus effect, which Jeremy has written about in his books and talks about um, frequently, is the idea that you will begin to behave in ways that your avatar might. And I don't bring this up to talk about race because acting like a certain race, that, that doesn't exist. What, I, what I'm, the example that I like to use is when people look in the mirror in VR and they see that their avatar is significantly larger than they are, heavier than they are, then when they come out of virtual reality, they are going to move a little bit more slowly. Because that link has been forged in their brain that they're a little heavier than they thought they were. That's the Proteus effect. So I only bring that up to say that the way you, when you look in a mirror in VR, what you see has an astonishing effect on how you think about yourself. Now, where that dovetails into what you're talking about, which is um, sort of walking a mile in another person's shoes, especially with regard to racial and cultural discrimination, that's largely dependent on other people, right? Because in order for 
that empathy to arise, you would need to have a negative experience based on, you would need to have other people treating you negatively because of the race or culture that they thought you were. And so that research tends to be done with scripted experiences. So you're not dependent on other people's actions. But those experiences, those scripted experiences have been um, have been shown to be significantly successful in um, engendering empathy in people about the experience of other cultures and races. And in fact, that's being done even outside the lab. There have been experiences that, that have been at Sundance over the past few years that have really plumbed this idea of experiencing police brutality for being a black male where you might not otherwise encounter that uh, in your day-to-day life. And so there are a lot of ways to do that, though they tend to be scripted rather than sort of these organic live improvisational interactions. Would you say then, so if as an educator, I'm kind of aware of this, teachers sometimes speaking of scripted experiences will try to reenact simulations, let's say in the classroom, you know, what it's like, you know, what was it like to be a Jew in the Holocaust. So they might do some sort of reenacting simulation, you know, is VR. Oh, and, and sorry, the criticism of these reenactments are that a, they're so unrealistic that, you know, there's no point in doing them because they really don't get the story. Right. And then B, even if they did get part of the story right, should we be subjecting children to, you know, those kinds of experiences which are highly negative? So, oh, no, I mean, I think that that's it's a really interesting question because the efficacy of of that sort of a simulation, not only does it ramp way up when you're using VR, but for for the reasons that that I was talking about with social VR, it is so viscerally realistic that. I'd argue that simulation is so effective in VR that you need to draw some lines around what might be psychologically damaging. Um, There certainly, there have been VR experiences that involved Holocaust survivors revisiting camps and like giving people a tour of those camps. And that is a sort of a remarkably effective way to get a sense of what they went through while, while being in the space itself. Um, without necessarily subjecting somebody to the psychological assault of of being in a simulation of them being a prisoner in a concentration camp. And so I think that VR is a remarkable tool for giving people a sense of what it's like to really be someone, really be somewhere, really do something. And because of that, I think it takes a lot more deliberation about what kinds of experiences are fair to put somebody else in or not. So I've read, especially these last, this last year, a lot of books on VR, yours included, and no one really is talking yet about VR in education per se. So I'm going to, I'm going to make the statement that, you know, 
educators and education, the education industry in general has been very slow to adopt this compared to, you know, VR as a medium for, you know, telling a narrative or VR, obviously in the gaming industry. And then of course you touched on VR in the, in the porn industry. So why, why do you think education has been so slow to jump on this, uh, I don't want to call it a bandwagon because I don't believe like you, I don't believe it's a bandwagon anymore. I believe it's, you know, it's, it's making a stay. Uh, so why so, so slow? I think that there, there are two different things that are happening. W- one is that research in VR at the collegiate level is increasing. Um, more universities have programs that deal in virtual reality in one way or another than, than ever before where you're where you're seeing slow adoption is in the sort of K in the, in the States, we call it K 12. It's different. It's different in a lot of countries, obviously, but from elementary, uh, elementary and secondary school before university, um, it's a lot of it is a funding issue. A lot of it is that this is not cheap equipment. Um, and so when education budgets are going down every year, when teachers are forced sometimes to buy their own supplies for the classroom, the idea of being able to deliver high quality virtual reality to students is is an astronomically difficult one to do it's it's getting easier in some really important ways some of it is funding help from the headset manufacturers themselves trying to get it into classrooms some of it is that the headsets are a little less finicky than they used to be and a little cheaper than they used to be. So, you know, when the first generation of consumer headsets came out, like the Oculus Rift or the HTC Vive, these involved, you needed to, not only did you need an incredibly sort of high-powered PC to be able to run it, but you also needed these external sensors that could track the headsets in space. That was three years ago, three and a half years ago. Fast forward to now, you have two options that are better than that. If you have PCs, you can use these uh, headsets that don't need external sensors, or you can buy headsets like the Oculus Quest that don't need a computer at all and give you this sort of fully immersive six degree of freedom, as it's called, virtual reality, in which you can look around and you can move around. And however, it's cheaper and easier. Those are still $400 headsets. That is essentially buying a a video game console for every student who's going to use VR. So it's still, it's easier than it has been and it's cheaper than it has been, but that's, that's still an expensive endeavor, especially in public school systems. So a lot of it in my mind is dependent upon that. And then some of it is dependent upon the content itself. A lot of the sort of simulation experiences that are being made are being made for higher level education, for uh, university students, for graduate students that are working in STEM fields. Uh, So a a lot of the issues are with VR's adoption are also sort of the, what software is being created to allow primary and secondary students to have compelling pedagogically significant experiences in VR. So it's kind of, you have the funding um, corner of the question, you have the, the cost and ergonomics and ease of setup corner of the question. And then you have the software corner of the question. So it's a, it's a, it's a triangle, I'm afraid. Um, And none of this is, none of this is, is to cast aspersions on VR's education applications because those are are numerous it's just about why aren't they in schools and and that to me is sort of a a threefold answer 
Good, good answer. The other thing I can add to that, uh, working with teachers, often they don't actually understand the context to the application. What I mean by that, you mentioned scripted experiences. Well, you know, there aren't any. Like with teachers, especially ones that have been teaching for many years, albeit they're starting to throw the textbook uh, into the garbage and realize that there's better ways to teach than textbooks. Teachers are used to having some sort of scripted guide to know uh, what to do with the child. And there are many or a plethora of applications out there that people just aren't aware of how it might fit into an educational context. So there's one Ricky's plank experience. Have you ever tried uh, Ricky's it, plank it, experience? It sounds like it's similar to a lot of different ones, which is uh, you essentially sort of walk a plank as a, as a means of just demonstrating what, what presence is all about. Exactly. And it's more, or it's also, you know, they take you up in an elevator to like an 80 story building, and then you have to walk out onto, as you alluded to a plank. And so what an amazing application to look at in, you know, human physiology, like strap a, a heart rate monitor on the person and see, you know, how much does the body actually change as a consequence of walking this plank and then adding the physical plank to it. So, again, educators are still slow to think about how some of these VR experiences could be twisted or given the right context. That's a great point. And, and some, of, some of the kind of most classroom ready VR applications are those that weren't necessarily created for uh, an explicitly educational application. Google earth, the ability to visit anywhere in the planet using Google's um, kind of earth API, you can take students anywhere. That's an amazing thing, but it also needs to be sort of used as a complement to an existing lesson where you give them a sense of presence of what it's like to actually go to the Taj Mahal rather than just look at pictures or read about it or watch documentaries. But that also involves having the knowledge that this exists, working it into your lesson plan, having the, the infrastructure of headsets to be able to do this, having enough for every student. So you don't have, you know, there, there, there are all these sort of practical hurdles to using it because it's not as easy as just buying 20 to 30 of these headsets and having everybody strap in at the same time because you also need to be able to make sure that what a student is doing is the thing you mean for them to be doing so there's a degree of sort of oversight and supervision that a teacher needs to have amen to that uh, one last question just sort of wrap things up i know you're mindful of time so let's say I did invite you to speak to a room full of teachers. And again, you know, my hope, which is why I do this podcast, is to get more and more teachers interested in using VR, despite the cost, which will come down. What, what are some tips or uh, bits of wisdom that you might give them as they start to embark on looking at using not Google Cardboard, but highly immersive well, VR? Well, I think that what's really interesting is that the just the sight of a headset is absolutely fascinating to kids. Everybody wants to put it on. Everybody wants to see what it's like. And so there's, you know, if you start to integrate it into a classroom, part of it is going to be getting over that initial excitement. So it's almost like you want to know what the first thing you're going to have kids do is. And then after that, 
you can start really thinking about what are the educational what is the educational potential of this? How can I use this? And there are two um, sort of very common, even free experiences that that are just waiting to be used. These are not things that were, you know, these were not things that were designed to be as classroom experiences, but they're things that can really enrich any any classroom endeavor. And one that I mentioned is kind of using Google Maps and Google Earth to, to bring students anywhere in the world. And the other is a, these these various sort of art applications. There's something called Tilt Brush in which you can sort of paint in three-dimensional space. Uh, and there's another called Medium in which you can sculpt in three-dimensional space. And then you can, you can export the result and have this, and you can even 3D print them sometimes. But it's an incredible way to unlock kids' creativity in a way that isn't your sort of typical art class. And it gives them something it gives them a freedom that they're not going to have in any school, which is the ability to sort of move freely and do whatever they want with their arms and make something look exactly like they want it to. And it frees expression in a really remarkable way that goes so far beyond, you know, finger painting or, or mixed media work or whatever art, um, art curricula have in schools. And it really is, you know, whether you use VR as a reward in your classroom, uh, you know, if if you do whatever the benchmark is, if you if top five performers on a test get to use a headset uh, at recess, or you integrate it more explicitly into a lesson plan, and I think that there's a huge continuum of ways that you could use VR. I think it's important to think about how you how you make it a tool rather than a uh, just an entertainment device because it's always going to be an entertainment well device but the key is getting kids excited about what you are teaching them by using this headset and making it a tool like your examples are are bang on and you know if a student is in tilt brush though there will be I don't know the percentage, but there'll be a small percentage of kids that will just intuitively stay in there for long periods of time mm-hmm. and wouldn't be bored. But there's going to be, a, you know, I would argue a higher percentage of kids that go into tilt brush. They make a few things, you know, out of the duct tape or whatever kind of painting palette they're going to use and then not really know what to do next. And it, so you alluded to this, I think giving teachers the right context like maybe the context has to be that uh, civilization and its artifacts are starting to erode. Go into tilt brush and recreate, you know, Canadian totem poles that could then be used as a three D artifact to uh, to. I think that's a that's a great culture. example of of how or, this needs to be used in conjunction with sort of an existing purpose, right? The the VR experience is is not the end. It's it's the means to the end. And the end is to learn about the thing that you are teaching. And so you're absolutely right and you've clearly thought a lot about this is you are like y- you as a teacher have these wonderful open-ended tools and providing structure within those tools is what's going to create a a lasting impression and a lasting effect for the kids. Well said. 
so often I, at the end of these, I invite listeners to have an, a way to get a hold of you. Do you have any medium that works well in case uh, someone listens to this and would like you know, to get a hold of you in regards to Certainly. something um, you brought up? I can. Uh, uh, so I guess there's a couple of ways. One would be uh, uh, the web. Uh, and I, I just want to make sure, uh, that the URL is still live and I believe that it is. So that would be, uh, if people go to futurepresencebook.com, um, then they can get in touch with me that way. Uh, and also I would say that the social media platform that I monitor slash use more often than, than any other would be Twitter. That's how you got in touch with me, Craig. Uh, so you can hopefully attest to the fact that I'm, I'm accessible on that. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at uh, Proven Self, P-R-O-V-E-N-S-E-L-F. 